God gave you 100,000 watts of power, but it's up to you to put them to work. This is the John Adams Radio Show. Coming to you live from high atop the EMR Tower in beautiful downtown Decatur, Georgia, center of the known universe. Thence, 23,300 miles directly into outer space this week, affiliates SATCOM 5. Thence rebroadcast all across the fluted plane to our vast EMR radio network. This week, 331 stations plus. The island of Guam. Speaking directly into the golden EMR microphone, this is Excellence in Money Radio. And we are glad to have you along on this special edition of the Real Estate Coffee Break. I remain unbossed and unbought, speaking truth to power, and committed to truth, justice, and the American way of making money. And we have another adventure into broadcast excellence today. And I have to stop this screen sharing. And I want to share this screen, I think. Let's see how this works. Ah! It worked. I want to invite you kids to... Um, before we get started, remind you that one year from now, all of this is going to be behind us, and I want to invite you with me and Margie and about 400 other people on the 2023 Expo Cruise. And where does Expo come from? Well, I believe that excellence provides opportunity, E-X-P-O, and that makes you an Expo investor. And this says seven days and seven nights. Margie, I think it's eight days. She just said she, that's right. It is eight days. All expenses paid. That's right. All expenses will be paid by you. Anyway, if you have any interest in this, we're going to be talking about, um, and it's not just real estate. I will be teaching real estate. Margie will be teaching real estate. and But they will also have a lot of people there who have no interest in real estate, but they are entrepreneurs and internet marketers. And these are very, very interesting people, and I think you will enjoy meeting them. Uh, 
I've, this is our, I think we've been seven times now. Every year we go. We just got back in November, and it's a lot of fun. So anyway, uh, so much for that. Uh, our quote for today is the same one it was a week ago or two weeks ago uh, because it is so profound. And I bring it to your attention, please. It says, liberty means responsibility. And that's why most men and women, I'm adding parenthetically, dread it. I hate to say this, folks, but as a real estate investor and an entrepreneur, I am beginning to believe that most men and women in this country would rather give up their freedom for a little security. And the problem is they're going to end up with neither. Any government strong enough to give you everything you want is also strong enough to take it all away from you. And you have a responsibility to vote. You have a responsibility to get involved in these elections. I'm not going to tell you how to vote. You can figure that out for yourself. You have a question, you send me an email and I'll tell you how to vote. But I'm not going to use this forum to do it. But I think you know that I have a profound respect for the Constitution of the United States. I believe it was an inspired and is a, an inspired document. And I believe that life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness are gifts given to mankind and womankind by God, not by any government. And I just bring this to your attention as something that's concerning to me as I see what's going on. But we've got an election coming up this fall, and it's going to be very important. Margie, would you turn your volume down just a speck, please? We're brought to you today by Home Meteorite Shield. Protect your home against deadly meteorite strikes. It's only $14.95 a month. You can send your check to Americans for Democratic Action in modern society, or just make it payable to ADAMS and send it to me. I'll make sure that your home is protected. We're also brought to you today by Peter Burke at Reliant Mortgage Solutions. Peter's going to be talking with us today about refinancing, and you're saying, wait a minute, we've talked about refinancing before. Yes, we have, but we have a new and powerful reason to talk about it today. So you'll want to, in our first half hour, Peter, Peter will join me, and we're going to talk about why this may be your last opportunity to get in on fabulous refinancing opportunities. But you've got to start the conversation. Now you have a friend in the mortgage business. That sounds so cheesy. It's just like, what is it? The jewelry? The diamond. Now you have a friend in the diamond business. Anyway, now you have a friend in the mortgage business. Uh, I do want to remind you of the marketer's cruise that we opened with. We're leaving for Miami, not January of this year, but a full year from now. We're going to be done with this pandemic. And you're saying, I just heard on the news I'm not supposed to go cruising. 
That's baloney. Listen to me. Margie and I did this um, marketer's cruise, this expo cruise. We did it in November. And nobody had COVID on the ship. There was no problem. The protocols on the cruise ships are working just fine. I heard Admiral Brett Giroir. How do you say his name? Is it Giroir? Giroir? Anyway, Admiral, retired Admiral Brett Giroir, um, who is a physician and an expert on COVID, say he thought cruise ships might be some of the safest places to be in the world today. Just because of the protocols. Let me tell you, the place is spotless. And uh, I'm just, all I'm saying is you might want to learn more about this. It's eight days and seven nights. We're having private events that Margie and I are doing. Uh, it's a group of about 400, 450 real estate professionals, entrepreneurs, internet marketers from all over the world. And we are going to have a blast. It's 70% fun, 30% networking, mastermind events, and, and sharing with other people. There's no selling allowed. So it's called the Expo Cruise. Is our website down or can people go to Expo Cruise? Uh, it should be okay. Let me check. We have been having internet problems. I'm so embarrassed to tell you. I can't imagine how we feel. But we have been fighting with HostGator to get our website back up. And we, we had, as I mean, we think, we had malware. All right, Margie says she knows we did. Then why didn't you tell me anything about it? Honey, I did. I told you I've been working. Yes, Expo Cruise is fine. All right, go to com and just learn about it. And if you have an interest, then just put your name and phone number or email there, and I will give you a ring back, or Margie will give you a ring back, and we'll see if it's something that you're interested in. This is a, it is cheaper for you to go on this cruise than it is to stay at home. If you're in the real estate business, you deserve this. And it's a full year from now. Why am I harping on this right now? Because uh, it's going to be sold out probably in the next four weeks. Well, John, I don't want to put money down on it. I mean, uh, what if I don't get my money back? You can have 100% of your money back through the end of September of this year. But in order to have the option to attend, you've got to act now. And I'm just telling you, we're going, and we're going to have a blast. And we'd love to have you come. Darlene Cox, huh? Our private group will only be uh, maybe... 15, yeah. Our private group, the... the um, Real estate coffee break group, we're only going to be probably 15 or 20 people. I'm going to be teaching on advanced real estate techniques, real estate LLCs, um, lease options. I'll be teaching those to our group privately, but there'll be lots of other mastermind groups available. Margie is going to be teaching... Um, Retirement for real estate investors. Very interesting topic. And 
very involved. So she's got that background. I do not. But anyway, go to expocruise.com. There's our ship, the Freedom. We're going to be on the Carnival Freedom next year. Okay? Look, there. you can see me peeking out a window if you look very closely at your screen. No, not really. Okay. Um, let's see. I'm having a problem getting beyond this slide. Does anyone know why? No. Well, I'm going to go ahead and jump to this slide and start the slideshow again. There we go. And here's our good friend Warren Buffett who says, once again, if you don't find a way to make money while you sleep, you will work until you die. And none of us wants to do that because I want to give you the message you can retire comfortably on as few as 10 rental units. And that's pretty easy to do. Here's the buy and hold strategy uh, overseen by our old friend, the old reliable. And as you see, he always is good. That's actually a photograph of me when I used to smoke. Yeah, 40 years ago, I smoked cigarettes, and I looked just like that. And the girls called me the old reliable. <laughs> well, because I smoked so good, and I smelled good, just like James Brown. I feel good. Okay. Um, there are five steps. And first, you buy a house, hopefully below market value. We've taught you on this program again and again how to do that, but we'll kind of circle around. In the words of Jen Psaki, we'll circle back on that. Number two, renovate the house. Add some value. How are we doing that? Probably through um, paint. Probably through cleaning it up, probably through trimming the bushes and mowing the lawn, probably through, um, Margie, don't forget that plumber's coming today. I know. We have a guy coming today to this. We're on prestigious St. Simon's Island, the crown jewel of Georgia's coastal empire today. And we're at one of our rental properties. And the faucet is old, 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 and it has to be replaced. So I got a handyman coming today. He is not a licensed plumber. And he is going to replace the faucet, which I bought at Walmart or Home Depot for about half what you'd normally pay for them. I call them spigots. I think that's left over from the 1890s. Anyway, these are all examples of renovations. Um or repairs that you would make to enhance the value of your home. Number three, then you rent it out to establish cash flow and income. And let me tell you, there's never been a better time for you to rent your house than right now. Because the market for rental is tight. A lot of people that own rental houses are selling them. A lot of mom and pop landlords who have been in this business for 20, 30, 40 years are saying, you mean I can sell this house that I bought for 20000 I can sell for 350 Yes. And they're selling. And of course, those do not go back into rental. Those become owner-occupant, okay? And that makes the rental market tighter which is bad news. By the way, I'm going to be on Fox 5 this Tuesday morning at 
8.30 a.m. Fox 5 Atlanta. 8.30 a.m. And you're saying, well, John, I can't watch it because I don't get Channel 5 here in Albuquerque. That's all right. Go to myfoxatlanta.com. How's that? And you can watch it live at 8.30 in the morning, which is 5.30 in the morning in Albuquerque. I don't mind if you get up and watch it. You, that's fine with me. A lot of you people are farmers and you're up with the sun anyway. You know who you are. Number four, once you have rented it for a little while, that's called seasoning, then we refinance the home for cash to buy more property. Some of you have asked why I sought out Peter Burke at Reliant Mortgage Solutions to be a gold sponsor for this program. The reason is he is intimately familiar with the best ways to pull cash out of a rental property. He's been doing this for 20, 30 years now. And we're going to talk to him in just a minute about refinancing because I believe right now may be your last chance to really take advantage of refinancing. But we'll, we'll talk with Peter about it. So you refinance the house, you pull some cash out, and what do you do with that cash? You pay yourself back for, for these renovations that you made, and now you go out and buy another house. How many houses should you buy? I recommend one a year. One house a year. You're saying, John, that's too slow. I can't wait that long. Yes, you can. This is not a get-rich-quick plan. I'm sorry. just doesn't work that way. So, we already know that uh, real estate is ideal. There are five key characteristics. I'm not going to take the time to go through them right now, but I will tell you that I think residential real estate is one of the last areas available in America today where an average person with average income and average intelligence and average education can succeed. And I would encourage you to look into it. Is this easy? No, it's not easy. If it were easy, everyone would do it. But is it achievable? Absolutely. And it's based on education. And that's why you and I are meeting here today. And it's time, Margie, for us to go to our very special guest, Peter Burke. And I'm going to um, uh, go to, let's see, 18. And here's, here's uh, Peter's phone number, and hopefully Peter's joining me now. Um, what I say to people is, if you're not sure, if, if you don't know whether or not refinancing is smart for you, you might want to pick up the phone and start the conversation. Because Good morning, if you don't everybody. Start... Oh, hi, Peter. How are you, my friend? Oh, I'm doing great, John. How are you? If I were any better, I'd be twins. <laughs> Things are 
I'm, I mean, business is great. People are wonderful. Life is terrific. Good. I'm glad and to hear. anybody who doesn't take that attitude, I don't want around me. You know, every now and then, Peter, we run into toxic people. You know what I mean? Sometimes you look at them in the mirror when you wake up in the morning, if you're not careful. That's why business is great. People are wonderful and life is terrific. Because if you say it to yourself enough, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And here I am with the most widely viewed real estate investment video blog in America today with my very special guest, Peter Burke. How's that? Well, that's a great uh, thing to say. And uh, I, I, you're, you're on the right track, John. I think so. Now, I have here somewhere, uh, got to get past all this. I had something like, oh, it's... Uh, well, it's 25, 25. There. I thought you and I should talk about myths about refinancing. I sent you that article this week that said, in recent weeks, we've seen an uptick in refinancing because a lot of people are now worried that they've got to get off the fence or they're going to lose their chance to refinance at what is an extremely attractive rate. And I'm going to ask you to comment on that. Are there still people out there that need to refinance? There are. It's very interesting. There are still folks out there that um, at least need to see the options laid out to them, whether it makes sense. But I'm still seeing rates on the house you live in that start with the number four, and it's very interesting. Well, all I'm saying to somebody, and, and let's look at some of these myths here real quickly. Number one, some people, I've heard this, um, and I'm not going to call any names, but there is another mortgage company that calls it the biggest no-brainer on earth, mm -hmm. and they say it's free to refinance. Peter, is it free? It's not. Excuse me. I'm coughing. Um, it's not free. Peter, there are we costs. lost your picture there. Yes. It, the, the, the costs, um, the governor wants his piece. The closing attorney wants his piece. The county wants his piece. The lender needs to be compensated for the work involved. The appraiser, yes. Those costs are generally rolled into the loan. Okay, and there's another option, isn't there? You can adjust the interest rate slightly higher to improve the yield, and then the lender will pay for it. Is that right? Uh, yes, you can to, to some degree. You can incrementally increase the rate that uh, provides yield to the lender, and the lender covers the costs. It's... Um, it, it's worthy of a discussion um, because uh, it involves a basic understanding of bonds and Econ 101. But yeah, call me and I'll explain that concept. And the reason I mention it is I'll bet we have somebody listening right now who says, I would refinance, except I don't like the idea of adding the closing cost to my balance because my goal is to pay this off. 
And would should that person consider um, the possibility of maybe moving to a 15-year program and adjusting their interest rate to cover the... So they would literally just walk in, sign a bunch of pieces of paper, and their interest cost would go down. I mean, that's win-win-win, isn't it? Correct. Yes. Okay. So number two, the interest rate is the only important thing. That is true false. or false? False. Why? Well, you've got the cost of doing the loan. Um, you've got to look at how long you plan on staying in the house, the payback. Uh, you've got to look at the remaining uh, uh term left on your current loan it's like 3d chess you have to look at all of it don't just that, look at the rates you know what that is a great analogy refinancing is a little bit like star trek chess where queen to queen's level four and you remember spock would always win he would he would stand there doing this and no. then he would make this stunning move from three levels and and it would be Check, check, checkmate. The other one, and you see it on the internet, is um, rates at 1.99%. And um, it fails to mention in that article the amount of discount points to buy down the rate to 1.99%. And is it cost effective to do it? And in most instances, the answer is no, but it makes for interesting advertising copy. I would consider that, Peter, borderline misleading. Uh, it is. I mean, I've seen that. Yeah. And, and it implies that these loans are comparable to any other loans. It's just that they're half the rate of everybody else. And you're saying, wow, I want a, I want a mortgage that looks like a rocket yeah. without mentioning any. <clears throat> What do they call it? Clickbait or something? Maybe I don't yes, know. Uh, or bait and switch. I think yeah. is how the federal government refers to it. So, all right. Well, let's go back to our list here, real quick, and let's work through these. Um, will refinancing affect? Let's say you want to move in ten years, but you're not sure, um, and and you do a. a break-even calculation and it's you know in two and a half years you've covered everything and you're pretty sure you're going to stay for 10 years anyway but will refinancing affect the sale of your house at some point in the future no i mean here's the way i explained it and tell me if the, this is right or wrong i talked with the house privately and the house does not care <laughs> yes, that's true. <laughs> well, a lot of people think, oh, I've done this to my house. Will it ever forgive me? Look, trust me, folks, the house doesn't care. Number four, because I'm refinancing, I won't need a credit check. Wrong. That is wrong. Yes. And how important today compared to 10 or 20 years ago is your credit score it's it's the first step it's it, it's absolutely imperative it affects your interest rate your ability to qualify and it's it's a primary first step 
So if somebody will pick up the phone and call you, can you help them uh, take a look at their, get them over to annualcreditreport.com or? Yeah. Or... My comment is I will give you as many questions or answer as many questions as possible without pulling that credit report. We're just, you and I are just going to have an assumption of what's on that credit report before we look at it. And then you can decide how you want to proceed after getting that information. But that's always been the way we've approached it is let's not pull it. Let's just make an assumption for right now and hope and that that assumption is correct when you're ready to move ahead. I like to go look at Credit Karma dot com because they do not ask for a credit card i believe that's right or i think it's uh annualcreditreport.com which is from the right. ftc i think that's the ftc version of that it. is correct however <clears throat> they do not give you a score although as you have pointed out to me the score that i get at credit karma may or may not be the score that is created and used for mortgages. Correct. So the whole thing's sort <clears throat> of confusing. Yeah. I understand you have a brochure called Understanding Your Credit by Fair Isaac and Company that you will make available to people. Is that correct? It's right on my desktop. If you text me with your email address, I'll send it to you. I'm pointing Ex at it. It's it's a, a you shared it with me. I have it here in my formerly nicotine stained hands, and I'm actually going to pull it up on the screen. And there it is. Can Somewhere. you see that? No, I don't see it. Oh well, we're we're going to fix that. Stop share, and now we're going to screen share. Oh, here it is. There. Understanding FICO scores, what you need to know about widely used credit scores. And as, as it implies here, we're somewhere between 300 and 850. I was at 310 last week. John, I've got my significant other, Janet, right here, who just wanted to say hello. She was wandering through the studio here at Reliant Mortgage Solutions. So I said, she's the one that really knows everything. And no, so, I don't. So... <laughs> You're being broadcast to all 2,000 listeners, Janet. Well, we're actually on 331 stations plus the island of Guam. Oh, wow. So if you speak native Guamanian, you can say, Hakalaka <laughs> Tuwau. Well, everyone is in great hands, and I'm enjoying the show. Fantastic. Janet, thank you. Yeah, good and to see you. <laughs> we look forward to seeing you real soon. Yes, now, I'm going to stop sharing this because uh, but you, we have that brochure. And if anybody will call or text Peter, he will get you the brochure. Yeah, you got to send me your text me your email address. We found that we can't text it well, but I'll be more than happy to share it. Good. Text your email address to Peter and he'll get that to you. One final myth. Peter, and I want to share this so people can see it as we go through it, and it is 
Um, a lot of people have this idea, and I don't know where this came from, that you can only refinance your mortgage once. Peter, you helped me and Margie all through the early 2000s as rates, I mean, we had some stuff at 16%. And as I recall, about once a year, you'd call me up and say, John, it's time again. Yes. And we did it again and again and again. That's true. And, and so is do any of the loans that are out there right now have like prepayment penalties or or anything that would make it prohibitive? Well, only in a very small, narrow window of loans are there prepayment penalties. Very, very narrow. And it's not going to be on the house you live in. Well, I just would encourage anybody within the sound of my voice to uh, pick up the phone and call Peter and, and calmly uh, start the conversation because um, the key here is that the Fed has announced, I mean, Jerome Powell said last week, we're going to go up on rates. Yeah. The question now is how much and when, and we all hope that that does not shock the economy. We don't want that. So hopefully this will be uh, gentle, but nonetheless, we pretty much know rates are going to go up and probably this year. Yes. And, and so I just would encourage people to pick up the phone, call 678-557-9759. Don't forget to ask for your book on FICO scores. Right. Because that's very revealing. And talk with people. Start the conversation. That's what I say. So, Peter. Uh, John, I, I do want to say um, we had a lot of great uh, response last week from your rental increase letter. And some of the feedback I got was um, someone noted it as being very courteous, but firm. And I thought that was a good uh, feedback. Um, if you want that letter, I'd also be more than happy to share it with you. You know, it's interesting that you mentioned that letter because um, Margie and I struggled for years the whole topic of raising rent is one that you'd rather just ignore. Because if you've got a tenant, you don't want to rock the boat. You, But what ends up happening, Peter, is that this person's been there for five years and they haven't had a rent increase. And now in order to get to market, it would truly be a shock. Correct. And so we have adopted the policy of having some rent increase every year, even if it's just $2.50, to remind the tenant that they are consuming something. This, this isn't just free. <laughs> and my taxes are going up. My insurance is going up. Uh, the guy that's coming to uh, put the new faucet in here, he... He quoted me a price of 80 bucks. That seems like a lot to put a new spigot in, but that being said, a plumber would cost me twice that. Correct. And so, you know, but my costs go up and I want the tenant. So we wrote that letter and crafted it over a period of time, trying to make it 
um, business-like, and yet I won't—I don't want to use the word compassionate, but let's just say recognizing that the tenant doesn't particularly want to pay more rent. But I tried in crafting that letter to be respectful and to thank them for having been a good tenant because, as you and I have talked about, our tenants are valuable assets. And if we can keep them in the property longer than just one year or maybe two years, that's where the real profit in rental property starts to kick in. So. Peter, and I, I, my, my, my one observation as a bystander sure. on that is you can always lower the increase if it truly co- creates a hardship or is enough where the person has to move. There's there's nothing wrong with saying, okay, I wanted 150 but I'll accept 125 as opposed to saying, here's an $85 increase. Right. And a little bit of horse trading. Absolutely. And, and that's part of the skill of being a landlord is making sure you, I want my tenants to stay for the remainder of their natural life and beyond. I want their children to stay there, I want their grandchildren, I want, if, if I could get someone to lease, and I'm going to use a, a mortgage underwriting word now, in perpetuity, mm-hmm. if, if I could do that, I would. But so far, my best experience is 26 years. That's good. That is good. The mortgage was paid off and everything. Peter Burke, 678-557-9759. Pick up the phone. Start the conversation. Peter, thank you. Thank you, everybody. Have a great rest of your weekend. Catch you next week. Fantastic. We are going to, it is 40 minutes after the hour, and we are now going to hear from my friend John. Nope. Are we going to see John? We are. This is great. Uh, John Schaub has been promised and is coming up, hopefully, right now. So watch this, please. John Adams here, your host on the Real Estate Coffee Break, coast to coast, with our very special guest, John Schaub. Hello, John. How are you? I'm wonderful, John. It's good to see you. Well, thank you. It's good to be seen as, as opposed to viewed uh, and I'm getting to that point in my life with COVID and everything else. I'm starting to get worried about it, but I'm glad. I think you've, you've got me by a year or two and you look much healthier, healthier than I do. And that's, <laughs> it, it's, that's it's, I got a filter on this thing. Makes me look better. <laughs> <laughs> I need one to send me one, please. Yeah. Uh, John Schaub, you have written a book that has received wide praise and, um, great success in the, uh, literary marketplace, and I see it on the wall behind you, building wealth one house at a time. John, that's a new edition, isn't it? That's a second edition. That's the edition. second edition, it is. Yeah, I, re- I redid it about five five years ago. And uh, Well, it's I have um, uh, got a copy of it. It's one of my standard textbooks, and, and people that call my show and say, hey, I'm trying to figure out how do I bring all this together? There seems to be a lot um, that, that I need to know about. 
actually buy this book. And of course, it's available at Amazon. It's available on your website, my website. Everybody's got it. But for $25 or so, what a great investment. Tell us a little bit about what motivated you to write this book and how you went about saying you need to know something about this. You need to know something about that. Bing, 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 bing. Now go out there and get them. Well, you know, I, I, I like to teach people, but I don't teach often. I teach once or twice a year, and I actually haven't taught in a couple of years now because of COVID. Uh, but I'll, I'll probably get back in the saddle and, and teach one or two classes a year. But that don't that does not reach many people. You know, I, I, when I when I teach, I, I limit my classes to about 60 people. So I, I don't reach many people teaching. Uh, so I, I was thinking of a way that I could reach out and, and uh, you know, tell people, my version of the right way to do this, which has been proven successful for me and for a lot of a lot of folks over the years. I've, I've taught a lot of people over the last uh, 40 some years. And, um, and, and my strategy is to keep it as simple as possible. I think when you make it too complicated, people just give up, you know, and they get too many moving parts, too many decisions to make. So my strategy is a simple one, and that is to buy one house at a time. Don't go out and buy a lot of it once. And then buy, actually buy one house a year for most people. Uh, which would, you know, if you're if you're a relatively young person like we are, you know, if you start start at sixty and start buying one house a year, time you have seventy, you'd have ten houses. Uh, you know, so, yeah, but you know, it, it, it's just a, it's a good pace, and there's so many things about buying one at a time that makes sense to me. First of all, every time you buy anything, it's it's a seminar. You learn something. You know, you you won't do it perfectly. Nobody does it perfectly. In fact, one of my favorite coaches, John Wooden, says the team that makes the most mistakes wins. And I had to wrestle with that idea. I said, that doesn't, that doesn't make a lot of sense because I've, I've seen my football team make a lot of mistakes and they didn't always win. <laughs> right, right, but, right. But I think his message is that you have to go out and try things even if you're not sure they're going to work. You know, and, and in the real estate business, the, the downside risk is relatively low if you learn the basics. You know, the, the, the people that get in trouble in real estate go out and buy something that they don't know how to manage or they buy something and they don't understand the financing and they get in trouble and they can't make the payments. So they lose it eventually. So, you the, know, I teach people, I teach the, people to the, buy yeah, things. Yeah. And, go ahead. The, the, the older I get, the more important it is uh, to me to use other people's quotes because I'm losing my ability to be creative. But Gary Keller had a quote that I liked. He said, uh, um, buying real estate is no more investing than buying groceries makes you into a chef. <laughs> and I think his point was, you've got to learn what you're doing. You've I got to... To, uh, you know, if, if you want to be a chef, you not only have to know about groceries, but you got to know how to cook it, how to serve it, and everything else. And I'm what I'm hearing you say is get out there, learn what you need, and then don't wait. Go ahead and take action. Is that right? Well, that's right. You, you have to take some chances, and, and you'll never know it all. And, and the people that struggle the most with this business are the people who are the smartest. You know, they're, they're, they they uh, they have several degrees, and they, they are really A students, and they overthink things. You know, they, they want to know everything about it before they make a move. And I say, you know, it's not that complicated. There's really not. Uh, the, the trick is to buy something that you're willing to hold for a while, and that means you, you're willing to deal with the people who are going to live there. Uh, so the tenants, you know, you should always think about two things before you buy a piece of real estate, I think. 
One is who are you going to rent it to? What are they going to look like? How much money are they going to make? Will they take care of this? Or are they just going to beat it up? You know, because if you buy a wrong property or a different property, I won't say wrong, but if you buy a property where people are only going to stay two or three months and move back out again, you're going to, have to spend a lot of time painting that place. And you're going to spend a lot of time cleaning it, and looking for new tenants. I, I try to buy a property that people will stay in for a very long time. You know, the rest of their life is perfect for me. Uh, and, and I've had a number of people do that, you know. But, uh, if you know, if somebody will stay five or 10 or 15 years, your life is really good as a landlord. You don't have to work much. They'll take care of the house more because they want to stay there a long time. And, and you end up making money, not because you did anything fancy, but because you held on to it for a while. And, and I always ever... tell people, I do you ever get in a situation where you've you've had a house with some great tenants in it for 8, 10, 12, 15 years, and finally they say, hey, we'd like to buy this house, and it may, does it ever make sense to consider selling one of your rentals to a tenant? Well, I'd be happy to do that if they could qualify for a loan. Uh, the, the problem most people have, and the reason that they are tenants is a uh, probably a combination of credit, income, and down payment. You know, you have to have those three things to qualify for a loan. And the loans are better today than they've ever been as far as interest rates and payment schedules. But you still have to have credit, you have to have income, and you have to have a down payment. And uh, those three things are elusive to a lot of people. And that's why well over half the people just rent a house, I think. Plus, the, uh, I have a number of tenants uh, who have money. You know, They probably could buy a house if they wanted to. They don't want the responsibility. They don't want to have to put a new roof on that house or worry about the, the wiring or anything else that goes wrong with the house. And things do go wrong with the house. And uh, so as a good manager, you should have uh, a, a number of folks who you know you can call, a good plumber, a good electrician, who can fix things for you in a reasonable amount of time to, to keep your tenants happy. And of course I do. I've, I've been using the same people for years. But I just had a lady who lived with me for 16 years move out. And uh, she did not buy a house, but she gave me that house back 16 years later, looking better than it did the day she moved in. It was a perfect condition. I re-rented the house to somebody else, and I got $800 a month more rent than she was paying. And I had raised her rent every month for, for every, not every month, but every year yeah. uh, since she moved in 16 years ago. Can I raise everybody's rent a little bit every year? just to try to keep up with the cost, you know, with taxes, insurance, and maintenance. Yeah. But it, it is funny, man. You know, she made me a lot of money because I had no vacant days for 16 years. I never had to paint the inside of that house. I painted the outside. I put a roof on it and you know, did some things you do over 16 years. But she took really good care of that house. Well, I just have, a, I have a hard more. time. I have a hard time visualizing you installing a roof on a house. You know, I fell off a roof about 10 years ago and Margie has banned me from all ladders. I'm not allowed, but do you do your own roofing, John? <laughs> you know, when I, when I volunteered for Habitat, which I did for 25 years, I put on dozens and dozens and dozens of roofs. They'd always put me up on the roof, you know? Um, and I can remember we built down here in Sarasota when I was president, we built six houses in one week one time. And uh, I was on the roofs 
And uh, it was summertime. I don't know who picked it. It was me, but we picked June to build these houses. Well, if you come down, this is before we had global warming, thankfully. It was only about 105 degrees on the roof, you know. Uh, but, you know, you couldn't sit down and you burn your bottom. <laughs> you That's right. So you'd be standing up there nailing shingles on. And, and I ride oh. by those roofs and, and I'm still, I'm proud that they're still there, you know. <laughs> that's great. That's, that's yeah. a testimony. One, we're running out of time for this uh, visit, but one of the topics in your current book um, fascinates me. And I wondered if you'd just elaborate on it. It says in chapter number five, knowing what a house is worth before you make an offer. How can you possibly know what it's worth before you even negotiate with a person? Well, some people would think that maybe I should have it appraised before I buy it. And uh, you could go to that expense, but that's just somebody's opinion of what it's worth. It really doesn't, doesn't say what it's worth to you. I, I do the uh, research to find out what that house will rent for. And I give myself a range because if you say it's going to rent for 2000 a month, that's not a, a real number. That's just a round number. You know, you should say it's worth between maybe $1,800 a month and $2,200 a month. Mm -hmm. And then make sure that if you buy it, you can make it work at $1,800 a month. That's the low end of your range. And the same thing's true with the price. You know, you give yourself a range on a price. It, it's really hard to say a house is worth, say, $300,000. But if you're just getting started, I'll bet you you can say it's worth between $250 and $350. You know, you give yourself that kind of range. And as you get better at it and, and more experience in the market and study more houses, then you'll be able to tighten that up a little bit. You might, you might say 275 to 325. But again, you want to either buy toward the bottom of that range or you want to get financing that, that is covered by the low end of that rental range that you use. Uh, so you can afford to hold the house. Now, now some people don't mind if a house loses $100 a month or $200 a month. Uh, other folks are, it's very critical to them. You know, they want a house to make money. And generally that's a function uh, as to how much you borrowed about against that house when you bought it or, or who financed it for you. Yeah. If you can't afford to make the payments, don't go to the bank and borrow the money because they'll get upset if you don't pay them back. But if, <laughs> if, if you can make an offer to the seller with payments that you can't afford. So if the low end of the rent is 1800, you know you have to pay taxes and insurance and maintenance out of that, but you might offer them $1,000 a month payments and tell them you'd pay the taxes, insurance, and maintenance on top of that. And then the, the seller could accept that $1,000 a month, but the bank may want more than that. So, Well, the uh, interesting thing here is that occasionally you meet a seller who thinks they have to have cash, but the reality is, what are they going to do with it? They're going to put it in the bank buy a CD with it and get a check every month. It's essentially the same thing, except you can afford to give them a higher return on their investment. And it's something they already know. Have you had good success working with sellers and asking them to carry paper? Sure. Almost every house I've bought, I've bought that way. In fact, I have never gone to a bank even once to borrow money to buy a house. Uh, well, and there's two reasons for that. When I first started, they wouldn't lend me money. You know, I was younger. I didn't have a real job. I was in a real estate business and uh, you know, my credit was okay, but you know, they, they still wanted 20% down, you know, so that that's a lot, you know, and, and today it's about the same. They want you to have credit and they want 20% down. Well, yeah. if you're buying a $300,000 house, that's $60,000 down. That's a lot of cash. As a young man, I didn't have that kind of cash. So we are always looking for a seller 
who didn't want that property. And, and we were able to solve a problem for them because we would take the property over and we, we would pay them, not, not today maybe, but eventually we would pay them for that house. And they were just happy to get rid of the house. You know, we go through cycles and right now it's, it's kind of hard to buy, uh, but there'll be times again, if you hang around a little bit, there'll be times where it's not hard to buy, where people have houses they don't want. And when you have a house you don't want and it's sitting empty and you're making payments on a house you don't want anymore, uh, you'll, you'll, you'll sell to somebody and carry back some financing and it's good for both of you. I heard somebody say recently that um, making money investing in single family rental homes was really just a matter of time and mathematics. Would you agree? Well, I throw, I throw the people in that equation because it's, it's not just time and mathematics. You have to have the right people running from you. And, uh, and, and that's, to get the right people, you have to buy the right property, I think. And that is a property that'll that'll be safe to live in, and you know a fairly quiet neighborhood. And there's a reason that neighborhood's there. If it's shopping or, or schools or churches or whatever it is, there's a reason people want to live there. I rent most of my houses off of signs. That's where I get my best tenants. Now I put them on Zillow. You know everybody else does that too, but I want somebody who's driven by that that neighborhood and seen my sign out on a big street and and driven into the neighborhood and found my sign on a house and then looked at the house and then it's smart enough to call me off that sign. If you're not smart enough to call me. I don't, you know, you don't have to be very smart to use Zillow. You have to be a little smarter to call somebody and talk to them on a phone. <laughs> and when they, when they call me and I talk to them on a phone. All right. We're going to stop right there because we are coming up on a break and uh, we'll finish up with John Schaub uh, a little bit later. I would like real quickly to drag this over um, and cover with you which states. Uh, we're going to take a break in about three minutes. Um, and then Ian Robbins will be joining me for our landlord hour to talk about landlord-tenant. But one, one thing during the break I want you to think about the, we all know that uh, the CDC eviction ban has ended. Even so, um, states, counties, and some cities can still ban evictions and enact other tenant protections. This is one of the things Ian is going to talk about today. He said that Douglas County had just postponed all eviction cases because of this current wave of COVID. And um, I, I just, I am concerned that this is going to be the new battlefront that your state is liable to decide that they want to protect tenants and ban all evictions within the state. Now, I'm in Georgia. And the good news is Georgia is not going to go for something like that. I, at least I don't think so. Uh, Stacey Abrams might, but uh, I think it's very unlikely that the Georgia legislature would go along with it. And probably state Supreme Court would, wouldn't, would uh, overturn it, at least I hope. But let's look on the screen at these states that currently have some sort of hold on evictions. The first one, not surprisingly, California. And look at this. As of October 1st, 
this was last year, tenants earning less than 80% of the area median income will be protected through a pre-eviction diversion process through the courts. Um, I, you know, I hope it's fair-handed. That's all I can say. Um, we move on down. District of Columbia. Why am I not surprised? The mayor, Muriel Bowser, has signed an act phasing out eviction and utility shutoff moratoriums. But we don't know. Um, and we'll see. Let's keep on going down. And by the way, the, these, this is not completely current. I mean, this may be a couple of weeks old. Massachusetts, that's not a surprise. In some situations, courts cannot order an eviction for non-payment of rent. How about that? Uh, hardly seems fair. Minnesota. Minnesota has always had a bent toward the left, and I don't know why, but the Minnesota legislature has passed what they're calling an eviction off-ramp. And um, they have some, I don't know, that in any case, they are probably going to have some sort of restrictions on evictions. Uh, moving on down, New Mexico. Uh, New Mexico courts have placed a temporary moratorium on evictions. Uh, New York State, of course, um, their ban uh, expires today, January 15th, and it'll be interesting to see if that is extended. I would pretty much expect the state of New York to ban all evictions going forward. Uh, Oregon? What do you expect out of Oregon and Washington? Oh, dear. Um, Virginia, landlords must provide certain information to tenants when serving a notice, such as providing tenants with information about the Virginia Rent Relief Program and offering a payment plan. Uh, these are all steps toward a government takeover of your rental property. And it just doesn't make any sense to me. So I just mentioned that um, as we go into our break. Uh, before we go to break, I want to close this and go here to John Adams here, your host That's on not the it. real estate. I want to go to the next. Here we go. And we're going to do this. I want to remind you, many of you know that I have placed my real estate license with EXP Realty. And I'm going to suggest that if you are considering a career change, you should consider EXP Realty. I believe that in Georgia, where I'm licensed, we are very fortunate um, in that we have so many fine brokerage companies. We really do. 
There are states where there aren't very many. But in Georgia, we have always been blessed with a good real estate commission, a good legislature when it comes to um, uh, real estate licensing laws, and I think uh, many good commissioners. Our current commissioner, um, Lynn Dempsey, is, um, I think, a real asset to the real estate community um, because he's one of us. Uh, his background, he's a licensed broker. He is a licensed auctioneer and perhaps most important, ran his own small business for many years. So uh, Commissioner Dempsey understands the challenges that many of us in real estate are going through right now, and he has tried to help in every way possible, and I, for one, would like to thank Commissioner Dempsey. Um, but if you're considering a career change or you just want to learn more about why I chose eXp Realty, I'd like you to visit this website, and I don't think you can go there right now because we're having problems with our website, but it's partnerwithjohnadams.com. So please write that down, partnerwithjohnadams.com. And go there a little later, and there's information there that uh, I think you'll enjoy. Uh, there are a number of reasons you should consider eXp Realty, but I think the most important are the pay structure, the stock program, and revenue sharing. And if you learn about those, it is just hard to say no. So... I uh, look forward to talking with you about it. If you have an interest, contact me. We're going to take a short break right now, let you get another cup of coffee. I'm going to do the same thing when we come back. Ian Robbins joins us right here on the Real Estate Coffee Break. Go get another cup of coffee. I'll be right back. And we are back for the second hour of the Real Estate Coffee Break, a.k.a. The John Adams Radio Show, and uh, there's a video component to this. I'm going to stop sharing. What's that? There. And uh, glad to have you with us. We are joined soon by our special guest and my evil twin, Ian Robbins, will bring in his perspective. Um, and this is the hour where we talk a little bit about landlord-tenant issues and, um, oh, I was supposed to have my light on. I forgot, oh, there, that's much better, isn't it? Um, there's a lot going on in landlord-tenant right now. I hope you got another cup of coffee, because I did, and I deserve it. I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. Hello, Ian Robbins, how are you, my friend? Great, John, and you're good looking enough, and uh, we're looking forward to seeing you on Fox 5 on uh, Tuesday at 8.30. You know, I, I, um, my friend Van Rommel is out in Houston, and I had promised him that we would look at a video that I sent him about underwriting. He is, he is seeking a loan he has built a beautiful new home out there, and um, I promised I wouldn't mention his name, so if I did, just forget it. And uh, but he he uh, 
has gotten lost in the world of underwriting in applying for his mortgage. And I do, I, I'm, we're not going to have time today, so it'll be next week. But I was going to bring to your attention that underwriting is a deep, dark nether world where there are no lights, there are no telephones, um, you can't, there's no internet, you can't communicate with underwriters. They won't talk to you. And whatever you have submitted is not enough. They want more. They want, can you find that piece of paper from 27 years ago, a receipt for a hot dog you bought at the Atlanta uh, Stadium? Well, I can't find that. Okay, we can't approve your loan then. So um, to anybody who is struggling right now with a loan application that is stuck in underwriting, I feel your pain. <laughs> and, and I don't know what to say. Uh, you went to eviction court this week, right? I sure did, John. And I'll tell you what, it was it was eye-opening. I recommend that to many people because it's real world. Tell us about your experience. First, how do you find, um, it's not really called eviction court, but um, it, this it's actually magistrate's court. Is that correct? Correct. So for our listeners, if you have a house, you find out the county that your house is in, of course, then you call the clerk, ask when the next court is being held for tenant and landlord. And, and this particular court is scheduled just for the purpose of hearing landlord-tenant cases. And the great thing about visiting is, well, one, it's open to the public, provided you uh, behave yourself. Uh, I trust, Ian, you were not ejected um, from the courtroom for unruly behavior, were you? No, John, but it's funny you say that because there was a lady there that almost was. It was your classic, think of sheriff. This guy had the look, of course, the uniform, the demeanor, and this lady was on the other side of that, and she, every word she said was, you're about to get kicked out, and he was for real. And she, she wanted to get out of there quick, and she thought the whole thing revolved around her, and he let her know it didn't. Let me tell you something, folks. These judges, um, they... It's not about them. It is about the dignity of the court. And they will tell you in a heartbeat that, I mean, if you say something like, well, this is nothing but a kangaroo court, they'll put you in contempt of court and fine you $100 and may let you cool off in the jail for a while. And they say, you didn't offend me. However, you offended the dignity of this court. And um, it, we all know that in the United States, we have three branches of government. There's the executive, there's the legislative, and, of course, the judicial. It is a co-equal branch of our government, and it deserves the respect, I believe, of every American. Even if you disagree, I mean, as Americans, we're allowed to, to disagree with a decision, but that is the decision of that court. And um, so it's important, I think, as you point out, to remember that there is a, a, a person there, and it's the judge, who is going to maintain order, who is going to 
cause people to behave and to follow instructions. So tell us what you found. What were your observations in this court? Well, everybody, I've been to court many times because I really believe in this learning first and candidly taking the pressure off myself. I don't want to be in a position where I don't know what's going to happen and when. So I like to do a little homework. Well, the first thing I see on the now COVID court is a big flat screen TV mounted to the wall and some strange guy looking around like this. And what is it? Who is he? And it took me about 10 minutes to figure out who the players were. And he was an attorney. And there were three attorneys at this particular day that were doing their cases off site. So right away, nowadays, your attorney's off site. Then the clerk was calling roll and trying to figure out who was there. John, you said it many times and you're spot on. She basically did what the judge didn't even show up yet. She basically, the clerk said, everybody, okay, Mr. Jones, Mr. Smith, you're here. Go outside and try to work it out. So right away, she threw them out, not even the judge. Go try to figure this thing out and mediate. And if they came back to mediate, then the clerk would report that. They report the deal. The judge would ask a question or two and write it up and sign it. Um, so that was incredible. But what really got me, the clerk would also ask for the phone number. So let's say one party showed up. They would ask for the phone number of the person who was there and say, go outside and we'll have the attorney who's on the screen here call you <laughs> and work it out. To me, that was incredible. It got the process done, but nothing I've ever seen before. And then, John, I think what was most significant is I couldn't stay. I wish I could have, but I had to go. But the real cases were left for the end, if there were any. And many years ago, I saw an article on the paper from a Gwinnett County judge, and he had a little sign on his desk that said, this is not TV. And I'll tell you what, I'm guilty of this. You see court dramas and you think it's all about TV and it's really not the real world. So I highly encourage you to see the process because that gives you confidence that you study the landlord survival guide. You do the research. You look in the back of the survival guide. John has done such a fabulous job. I really come back to this because in layman's terms, explains what the real law is. And then you can understand what they're talking about. And that's what's going to be applied. But John's right, but it, you have to understand what just happened because of a couple of sentences that the judge said. Uh, any other observations? I, I think your advice of going and sitting in a session, even if it's only for 10 or 15 minutes, is a very valuable experience for any landlord to find out what is actually happening here. Well, my advice is uh, when I went outside, I was a little nosy, I'm guilty, I admit it to everybody, but I was trying to listen to the conversations of the negotiations. And it's the same stuff that you work with. So I won't go into a lot of detail, but they were talking about their life event, how they couldn't pay the rent. And the landlord was trying to figure out the best way to get them out. So, and with an attorney overseeing the conversation, it was just so real world. But then John, there was a fist fight. 
down the sh- right next door and there was blood and they had a oh cleaner. no i'm just playing but it didn't get testy but it could have got testy uh, i'm trying to attract people to come out and check out the bicycle <laughs> well i was afraid you were going to say somebody produced a razor blade and and uh, they locked down the building <laughs> Well, actually, John, I really am about going to court. So the last time I went, I, I couldn't find landlord court. I, I knew it wouldn't necessarily be there, but I went to different courts, criminal court, divorce court, uh, bankruptcy court, and there was even a marriage going on in the corner. And so they, it, it was a lot going on. You it is. It, it's interesting. I'm reminded of a foreclosure auction I went to years and years ago, Ian, where the borrower showed up at the auction with her church the the pastor was there in his robes the entire this is during the auction the pastor started praying the choir began singing <laughs> and there were the the woman who was being foreclosed on eventually she swooned and fell back this is while the auction is going on. And she had, what I found out later, are called nurses there to catch her. And they laid her out and were fanning her and somebody called 911. Do you think it slowed down that auction? No way. <laughs> that, that attorney went right on with the auction. But this was all going on. I mean, it was like a circus. So... Uh, hopefully your your landlord tenant court experience will not be a circus, but don't be surprised if there's some some uh, uh, let's say dramatics going on. And uh, I, I I would comment on what you said if I might. It's interesting to me, and we've talked about it on this program. This is one of the major changes I think in landlord tenant direction in the last five or ten years and it is an emphasis on pre-trial diversion um some people say that's always arbitration it it can take a variety of forms but what ian points out is so important for you to recognize that if you are attempting to evict a tenant and you do not have an attorney representing you and most landlords, I mean, uh, most, I just say small landlords, do not have attorneys. All the big uh, players do, uh, you know, the if you're a big apartment complex, sure. But don't let yourself get forced into arbitration when you just want the property. Because if that's, if that's your position, you have a right to say, I mean, they're going to make you listen, I suppose, to the arb- the uh, mediator, and by the way, these are court-authorized mediators who generally have some mediation training, um, and these people are, their goal is to help the parties come to an agreement, and if that includes allowing the tenant to remain, so be it. Um, I think the mediators have a tendency to want to try to avoid an eviction or, you know, a set out at almost any cost. 
And a landlord attending that type of event, um, not expecting it, I'm afraid might get talked into an agreement that they hadn't thought fully through. And you have every right to say in mediation, I'm sorry, I want the property. These people have um, demonstrated to me that I cannot. Why does my tie keep coming off? Um, these people have demonstrated to me that they are not going to pay the rent on a timely basis. They are not taking care of my property. They have had numerous chances. It didn't work out. I'm sorry, but I'm not willing to enter into some sort of consent agreement, even with the support of the court. And that, of course, opens up the possibility of the consent agreements. Ian, you and I have talked about that, where we structure a not only a payment plan, but a repayment of back rent plan, and then get the judge to agree to that. And That's exactly what happened. And the lady, this guy had a certain amount. And he was going to pay on this amount on this day and this amount on that day. And the judge would ask, I'm sorry, I couldn't hear. Please tell me that date again. And she was writing it up. And it was real world that, boy, she, and she signed it, turned it in. And I think, John, well, you're, if they don't keep it, then they'll sign the writ. Well, that's the great part of this. If you get a consent agreement, which is what the mediator is planning on producing is some sort of agreement that allows the tenant to stay under some sort of circumstance. Uh, I have seen situations where the judge will look at the consent agreement and say, hey, I don't think this is fair. Um, that's unusual. In most cases, and I'm going to ask if your experience was the same, my experience has been that the judge is wanting to move pretty quickly. Um, oh, yeah. They've got a lot of cases to get through, and unless there is something glaringly wrong, they're probably just going to sign it, and then you can take that. That is a court order at that point, um, and you can have that recorded, and if the tenant violates it, if they don't dot one I across one T, or they're a day late or a penny short, you can go right back to the clerk of that court and say, this person has violated the court order. We'd like a writ of possession. And they will issue it. And here's a good phrase to remember. Ad instanter. Ad instanter. It's Latin for on a moment's notice. A-D I-N-S-T-A-N-T-E-R. It, it's court for immediately. So Excellent. in your consent agreement, it needs to say that if the uh, tenant violates the terms of this, a writ of possession shall issue ad instanter. And that's just a common part of these things now. And the beauty is now we don't have to go back to court. Now we don't have to give these people a notice. Now we don't have to give them a demand notice or uh, go back and give them 30 days to answer and all this other jazz. So, uh, so much, so much for that. But uh, thank you for that report. You, as always, are a 
font of wisdom, and we appreciate very much your your willingness to to share that. But I think John, great. One, and, one, more, please. one more thing. Yeah, like to point. Out. You know, one thing you taught us in the landlord survival guide is um, on the on the first day they don't pay, send a late letter. Fifth day, send a demand letter. Seventh day, start the eviction process. And so, uh, because of uh, the process, it just takes time. But one thing you said, if they answer, get an attorney. And I so much appreciate that because even though you are, are learning together here, at a certain point, you need your professional attorney. And the thing about attorneys, I went to a landlord subgroup, I mean, landlord, a Georgia Reed meeting one time, the guy was talking actually about finding workers. He said, if you want to find a plumber, if you want to find people who eat hamburgers, where would you go? And he said, you go to McDonald's. If you want to find a plumber, you go to a plumbing supply shop. They're hard to find, but if you know where they are, I like to go to Racetrack or QT at 7.30 in the morning, and you'll find plenty of people to do some work for you. That's right. So you go, you go where they are. So where are you going to find an attorney who understands your county and understands 44-7, which you've taught us real well in the Landlord Survival Guide? Well, why not go to where they are? And so I found, well, I found six attorneys. I found three live, got their phone number, and now I get to talk to them if I need them because there's plenty of attorneys I can call. That's not the issue. I want the right attorney. And I think there's a certain respect, like what you said, there's a respect for the court. If you bring an attorney with you, you're saying, no, I don't know it all. I've got professional help. And I can't imagine, I haven't got to the price yet, but I can't imagine they're going to be that expensive for this short time they're going to be working with me. I'll find out. Yeah, well, it's interesting that you bring that up because in all my years of working with attorneys, I was born and raised in Decatur, which is the county seat of DeKalb County. And so half of the attorneys in the county live right there in the city because they all want to be real close to the courthouse. And so I know lots of attorneys and, and have a, had a lot to do with them over the years. Um, only once in 40 years have I ever heard of an attorney taking on a judge in court and lecturing the judge. And this, it was... I know the two parties involved. I'm not going to say their names, but the attorney was very um, hard-headed, and he felt very strongly. This was a divorce case, by the way, so it wasn't landlord-tenant, but this was in superior court, and the superior court judge said something that the attorney took personally, and the attorney turned around and tore that judge a new you know what and he was he was <laughs> held in contempt of court and jailed <laughs> i think oh, wow. it was only for an hour or two but i mean you know it's just it, there is honor among i shouldn't say thieves i will say honor among um, members of the bar and if you bring your attorney with you, even into magistrate's court, um, 
which is also known as small claims court. I think it's anything up to $15,000. I'm not sure. I know it changed. It was 10, but I think it's 15. Now. Anyway, if you bring your attorney, the judge is going to be more likely to be respectful to your case because you have brought a fellow member of the bar with you instead of saying, oh, I can do this myself. I don't need an attorney. And, and I think Ian is exactly right. Um, if, if the person answers, in my mind, that elevates that case to a level where if you don't have a very high comfort level, um, uh, you, you probably need somebody to go along with you. And I'll leave it at this. I'll never forget the time that where a, a magistrate judge made some decision and it was just wrong. I mean, it was an error. It was a judicial error in violation of Georgia code. And so I said, Your Honor, may it please the court, I'd like to um, dispute the, the court's decision on this because of this, this, and this. And the judge went like this to me. <laughs> and I went up to the bench and, and uh, he said, uh, Mr. Adams, I have an idea. I said, what's that, Your Honor? He said, why don't you let me be the judge? Ooh. I'm wow. going to recommend, Mr. Adams, you go sit down and stay quiet. That's what I did. <laughs> and, but, you know, he may have made a mistake, but it didn't matter to him because he had, it's sort of like a, an umpire calling balls and strikes. If they make a mistake, it's a mistake, but you're not going to get anywhere by challenging it. And at that point, it's best just to leave it alone. <laughs> so, but it, I learned I learned my lesson in humility that day. So. <laughs> All right. It is half past. I want us to look at something that you and I have been talking about now for two weeks, and it is this Brooks Crossing business. So let me see if I can find that. Um Let's see. How do I get to Brooks Crossing is number 48. Let's see what happens if I click here and then put in 48. Aha! Here we see, let me share the screen. Okay, this is um, actually, I think, Ian, you sent this to me originally. It appeared in the Washington Post, whose motto is, Democracy Dies in Darkness, um, which is certainly a lofty motto. And they did this multi-page expose on Brooks Crossing Apartments in Riverdale, Georgia. Now, the first question I have is, why is the Washington Post sending people to Georgia to cover evictions at an apartment complex. I've lived here all my life and I've never heard of it. But I think they think of themselves as a international type paper and therefore the world is their 
oyster or beet or something like that. But here's a picture that appeared in the Washington Post of Brooks Crossing Apartments. Looks like any other apartment complex, only more so. And apparently, um, it, this company did not meet the standards. So here's what it said. Throughout the pandemic, one Atlanta area landlord has bombarded residents with eviction notices. At the Brooks Crossing Apartments, tenants have faced 427 eviction filings since April 2020, more than any other area, uh, they say building, but what they mean is complex. And it says that regarding the tenants, they can't afford an alternative. Now, that's sort of a broad statement, but it gets worse. Uh, and I don't want to crucify this person's name, but it's uh, Mr. Yogane Torbati and Jonathan O'Connell. So this was dated a couple of weeks ago. During the first week of every month, the white sheets of paper showed up, jammed behind doorknobs, laid on porch chairs or tables, dropped on concrete patios. Janaya Sugik, a nail technician and mother of three, received her first late notice in June 2020 after her hours had been cut and her paycheck had dwindled because of the pandemic. Soon after, her apartment complex filed for eviction. Now, this was while the eviction ban, the CDC ban, was still in force, but the lawyers representing this company made the decision, as you and I had talked about during that time period, of going ahead through the procedure, recognizing that the judge, if it got to that point, might not um, want to hear the case, might throw it out, might hear it, might not. But this, these people went ahead and did it 427 times since April of 2020, according to data from the Atlanta Regional Commission. Um, management of Brooks Crossing has filed for eviction against his tenants more than any other landlord in the Atlanta area, according to data. That equates to 1.9 eviction notices per unit. I would say that's, that, that's just... Busy, busy, busy as a beaver. That's part of your job if you're a landlord is to tell the tenants if they don't pay, they can't stay. And it's in the lease. And this entire eviction ban had the effect of telling people, one, you don't have to pay rent. Two, what you didn't pay, you don't owe in the future because all you have to do is move out, and that's the end of that. And in my opinion, was an un-American seizure of private property for government purposes. Now, that's my personal opinion, although it happens to be the opinion of the United States Supreme Court. Thank you, SCOTUS. Notice how I used a little Washington inside lingo there. 
For those of you from Smyrna, SCOTUS means Supreme Court of the United States. SCOTUS. Okay. Um, the practice shows how some landlords during the pandemic have employed frequent threats of removal and and charged tenants extra fees. Ian Robbins, can you imagine a landlord that is so heartless that even though the landlord has had to go to a lot of additional work to accommodate the tenant, they had the unmitigated gall to try to pass on some of those fees as is allowed under Georgia law and in the lease? How dare they? Well, John, I want to thank you because you've taught me in the real estate community how to do it properly and charge those fees. And I, I think you're spot on. But keep going. Um, the practice shows. Oh, oh yeah. Um, employed frequent threats of removal and charged tenants extra fees, even as government authorities were urging landlords to minimize hardship and keep people in their homes. I would add to that, at what cost? At what cost to the landlord? I don't think the Washington Post is particularly concerned about the cost to the landlord. Now here is, let me get her name right, and I am not unhappy with Mrs. Um, Ms. Sugik. And I'm sure Mrs. Sugik is a very nice person. I suspect if she were here, I'd offer her a cup of coffee and we would have a cup of coffee. And she can do your nails too because she's very good at nails and she's got nice nails. And I see that. And, and very good skill. Yes, that, and, and that's a good skill to have. You know, it was Warren Buffett that said the reason he bought, what, what did he buy, Gillette or Schick? He, he, he's, he said, every woman in the world has two legs. <laughs> he said, that's why he bought Gillette or whatever it was that he bought. He, he wants to be on the ownership side of it. But anyway, um, Sue Gick, who rents a three-bedroom apartment with her children and fiancé, faced five more eviction notices over the next year and a half. Now, let's see, that's 18 months. And that's five more eviction notices. So that works out to about once every three months, she apparently continued to carry a balance and not get caught up. And I don't blame the landlord at all for saying to her, we've tried to work with you for three months, it hasn't worked out, and we are now going to file an eviction. Now, according to <clears throat> payment records reviewed by the Washington Post, they also included a $72 court fee for each eviction notice. Ian, this I assume is in Fulton County, but in DeKalb, it's $105 to file a dispossessory. How is it inappropriate for the owners of Brooks Crossing Apartments 
to charge a $72 court fee when they file a dispossessory when they've already paid that. Right. Well, John, I think for our listeners, I think the biggest takeaway for me is that anytime you're following the procedure correctly and going that it's documented and you're going to have some pushback from people who don't like what you're doing. And one thing I've grown up to do, and I appreciate your support and your guidance on this is just do what you're supposed to do correctly. Yes. You're going to have people that don't like you and, and have opinions. And like we've talked different times, it could be a realtor. It could be a cousin. I joke about it could be the Washington Post, but Brooks Crossing has an attorney that has passed the state bar who understands. So you got an attorney who knows what they're doing, a good management company, and then you got a writer. And I got to be very careful because this is being recorded. And my wife is a, is a reporter, but we like to say work. journalist, journalist, please. And she's very, very good. And she is. And the point is, though, is that in eviction notice, you and I, John, and our listeners don't file eviction notices. We send letters and we, uh, the, the, the sheriff files, if you want to use that term. Thank you. The, the sheriff or the marshal, depending on the county, is going to be delivering these notices. And it's not me. It's not Ian. It's not the attorney. It is the properly appointed official representing the court who is delivering a notice to the tenant. These things cost money. I'm sorry that Mrs. or Ms. Sugik was unable to pay her rent, but that doesn't mean that she is immune from the consequences. Things we do in life have consequences. And I would just, I'm going to say that this was written by Yegani Torbati and Jonathan O'Connell. I don't know these people, but I'm going to suggest that their sympathies lie with the tenant <laughs> you think? and not with the landlord in general. And because I think that's pretty much the position of the Washington Post and the New York Times. And I would simply bring it. But look at this. They had to have sent a team down here. They sent a photographer down. They sent two reporters. And who knows how long they took. And all they're presenting is the side of the tenant who, unfortunately, didn't have any money. Um, so anyway, I would like to say this, and then we need to move on, but look at this next, uh, during the four month ban, Ventron, Ventron is the name of the management company and they're in Florida, but they have to, um, one, of course they have to follow federal laws. And two, they have to follow laws in the state where the property is located. So whether Ventron is in Florida or Massachusetts or the Philippines doesn't make any difference. Georgia law still covers the 
dispossessory process, as we've talked about so many times here. And I don't know who Ventron, notice they don't ever mention um, who Ventron's attorney is. But so help me, Ian, I'm going to find out and I'm going to hire him. We're going to have him on this show because these people are good. So uh, look at this. Um, blah, blah, blah. During the four-month ban, Ventron filed for eviction against residents 99 times, even as hundreds of competing landlords paused eviction filings. There was never any part of the CDC eviction order that said you can't file. You could file all day long. You couldn't win, but you could file. And of course, as you and I recall, different judges were interpreting the CDC ban in different ways. Uh, you and I found a judge out in West Georgia somewhere that said, I'm sorry, as far as I'm concerned, the whole damn thing's unconstitutional, and I'm going to go ahead and issue dispossessories. And I'm assuming he hasn't been put in federal prison yet. I hope not. But my point here is the attorneys representing the management company were doing their job. And I am sorry. I'm always sorry. And I don't like whenever somebody can't afford to live somewhere um, or chooses to not pay to live somewhere. If they want to continue living there, they have to pay what it costs. I'd like to drive a brand new Cadillac every day. I mean, just every day, go get a new one. I can't drive that one because I drove it yesterday and now it's got 10 miles on the odometer. So I'm going to go get a new one every day. But I choose to use my resources in other ways. How sad is that? And I'm sorry, these people, they were using, okay, 14 tenants were using federal housing vouchers, according to Jonesboro Housing Authority records obtained by the Atlanta Legal Aid Society. Yeah, these are all helpful organizations to landlords. <laughs> Well, John, Amber, I think that, go ahead. I think, I think it's about education. We, almost every sentence in this article, I really do come back to the landlord survival guard. Just keep it really simple. There is a structure, which I like, and I think also Brooks Crossing knows their cost. And we went to Emory, and one thing I took away from Emory is we got to know our costs about what's going to happen if somebody doesn't pay. And so that Brooks Crossing had to pay money to, to, to reduce their losses. And they had, they it is. And it's important that you point out reduce their losses. This is not just some money-grubbing company that was making excess profits, whatever that means. I consider that phrase oxymoronic. But nonetheless... Um, they were the ones getting screwed here, not the tenants. Oh, the tenants had to go through the terrible 
terrible experience of finding a piece of paper on their front porch. They still lived there, didn't they? And all I'm saying here, and by the way, I thought this was great. Um, Amber Hobbs, a Ventron executive, said in an email that the company followed expert legal advice, which stated that we were in compliance with the CARES Act and other bans. And guess what they were? So... All I can tell you is, and you can read the whole thing, it goes on and on. Um, understandably, the Washington Post is going to take the side of the tenant against the evil businessman. But Ian is right. In Georgia, at least, we have a structure, a, a procedure that is outlined and one of the things we talked about last year, which has continued into this year, is that the courts have expressed a preference for fees as opposed to penalties. So in this case, the $72 was a fee based on the additional expense and work that the management company had to do. Um, had that been a penalty, the courts in Georgia would have been less likely to enforce that. But as long as we understand and follow the landlord-tenant procedures as they're written in 44-7 and elsewhere, um, we are on solid ground. And if you don't do that, you are, one, putting yourself, I think, or your company or your property in jeopardy, but two, you are on shifting sand. And I just, I, it's my personal opinion that the management company did the right thing here. And it appears to me that they continue to work with their tenants to try to help them. But that doesn't mean that they stopped all collection efforts. And I don't stop collection efforts. Um, and that's one reason I like the consent decree so much is it spells everything out and makes it a court order. So I just wanted to rant about that for a minute or two. Now I've got it out of my system. I feel much better. Great. So, uh, uh, oh, I love this. I love this. Um, look at this. Something about eviction filings leave lasting damage. Well, excuse me. A landlord-friendly legal framework in Georgia allows building owners and managers to quickly and cheaply file for eviction. Even if residents do not leave, they often face extra fees and can find it more difficult to find another place to live later with an eviction filing on their records. That's because they didn't pay the rent. I'm sorry. If I have, what is it, uh, 20 points on my license? Don't they pull my license at some point? What is that? Well, yes, it's sir. not fair. Oh, it's not. Funny, yeah. I, I don't know how many points it is, but you're. It's not a right for someone to live it, at Brooks Crossing. It is not a right for you or me 
to drive an automobile in the state of Georgia. And if we break the law so many times that we get a certain number of points on our license, they will revoke our license. I don't know what the number is, but it's not the state's fault that they awarded points based on things that I did. I did that to myself. And I don't have to speed. I don't have to do whatever I did to get points. Um, the last time I got points, this was awful. I was, this was a speed trap. And we got to get out of here. Oh, Margie doesn't want me talking about speed traps. Oh, she says I have to quit ranting. Okay. Well, in any case, um, Ventron founder Ronald Eisenberg uh, saw an opportunity. I, I want to get hold of Ronald Eisenberg. I want to get hold of Ventron's attorney, and I want them to be guests on this program. And, Ian, I put you in charge of contacting Ventron. I'll pay any long-distance charges you have. Okay. <laughs> Do you remember that we used to have to pay for long-distance? I remember it was – I'll never forget the first time I was on the Internet, and I knew I was communicating with New York, and I looked around, and I thought I was breaking the law. I mean, it was incredible. I, I remember that. Remember I, how we used to. I do remember there was a guy that worked at Dell Industries. Harold Udelson owned Dell Industries, and I worked there one summer. And the head salesman was a guy named um, Danny Tischler. And he was a great guy. This guy could tell a story. Anyway, when he was talking locally on the phone, he raised his voice. When it was. Elsewhere in the southeast, he was loud. And when he talked to the west coast, he would stand up to get a full <laughs> blast to push it all the way through to California. And every time he was on long distance, he stood up. I just, uh, the funny thing is his name was Danny Tischler, and people called, they couldn't get Tischler right, so they would make up, they called him Dale Tisdale. I wonder okay. if he's still around, but that was a great summer for me learning how to talk on long distance. All right, boys and girls, our time is up for today. We've got a lot of things we didn't get to today, but right now I'm going to not have an appraisal review, but we're going to go right here because it is four minutes before the hour, and I've ranted myself to death. And I'm and not going to and we need your input and your keeping us focused and toe in the middle and, uh, and balancing things out. So we appreciate the education. All right. Well, uh, mark my words. The next series of battles regarding eviction is now going to come at the state, county, and city level in states where it's allowed. And wow, that's got a lot of perspective, John. Thank you. You, you. Everybody, we've heard it first year at the real estate coffee break. It's going to come down to that level, not the national level. That's exactly right. And so what that means, Ian, is that we have some responsibility to get involved in our local governments, 
If we find out that our county is considering having a county moratorium, you need to raise Kane and, and let your voice be heard because you're a taxpayer, you are a voter, and you have a right to express your opinion. And you don't need to be embarrassed like the Washington Post would have you be um, to be an entrepreneur and to be a great American. So with that, I'm going to say, that's the 3 Mark IV, the John Adams Radio Show. And on behalf of my evil twin, Ian Robbins, this is John Adams reminding you, your financial future is not a matter of chance. It's a matter of choice. Make your choice a good one. So long, everybody.